You're listening to your favorite film podcast, the film show for film geeks by film geeks, The Film File, episode 105. Pick up your popcorn, relax into your seat, and let the show begin. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And welcome to your favorite film podcast. By film geeks, for film geeks. Andy, as ever, how are you? <laughs> the continuing saga of the COVID case in this household oh, continues. You know, I've just been mentioning about you. I've just done some radio <laughs> and talking about, uh, it just came up in conversation about about, about COVID and, and how some people get it and some people don't. And um, as you are the Omega man, tell me more. <laughs> yep. So everyone in the house now has had COVID, except for me. Kerry is currently suffering again. Um, it's meant that she, she's, for the past two years, she's had tickets booked for the Fit Jam weekend at Alton Towers um, this year because it was put back because of all the various lockdowns. And she loves going to the Fit Jams like with a load of her friends. as a great weekend. She's not been able to go because she's uh, still flagging up positive over oh the weekend so she's absolutely heartbroken that she's been looking forward to this and there's she can't get any money back on it because uh fit jam suck that they, they, they're not allowing any refunds for people catching covid it's tough luck you should have bought your own private insurance on it oh dear, which that's i think in this day and age is absolutely atrocious that um businesses and holiday companies etc are not changing their policies to reflect the fact that people are in lockdown. When these tickets were bought a few years ago, before the first lockdown, there was no pandemic. Yeah. So there was no risk. They should have changed their policies to protect people. Because all that's happened is that when it was cancelled for the first one, her tickets carried over and the tickets are carried over. So this is completely out of her hands. She could not have predicted that COVID would have got in the way of it. Sure. No money back from it. I think it's atrocious. We, uh, that's, a, that's just my anger. We were supposed to be going away for New Year, and uh, it looked it looked apparent that we couldn't go uh, a week or so before, uh, and had just taken out insurance just to cover ourselves. It was so last minute we took out insurance, and then the day uh, after, Germany basically said that you'd have to quarantine if you came over, as we were only going for, for New Year for a, a long weekend. It yeah. went 14 days of, of, of uh, <laughs> getting there, isolating missing new year and then coming back and isolating again so we we kicked into touch but thankfully we took out the insurance and, and it covered us uh, and the airline was great about it um yeah. i think it would have flown a budget airline that we weren't we were flying a ba they were a little bit more shall we say forgiving of the circumstances yeah it was just disappointing it's two years on the trot that we've had to do that we um but i do I do appreciate the situation. It's dreadful when you can't get your money back and uh, the amount of gigs that, that have, we've missed and, and shows. And thankfully, we've not cancelled yeah. a gig ourselves uh, because of that. But it, it'll happen at some point, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure. But anyway, I'm glad uh, I'm, I'm glad everyone's getting better. And it, and it does suck. I mean, I had it the second time, as we spoke about yeah. the other week. It's, uh, it's not going away despite what the government keep telling you, but that's another story for another podcast. I just seem to be superhuman still. You do. It's, I mean, it's... you have that, you've got that Charlton Heston jogging suit thing going on and that he had in the Omega Man as he's uh, running through Century City. Um, I think, I think there's something marketable. You, you know, we, as the last man on earth, you'll be, you could have a TV series about yourself. <laughs> Unfortunately, as the last man on earth, you're the only one who can watch it. 
Ah, I'll watch it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I'm sleeping on the couch again, so that uh, keeping contact, like keeping no contact with uh, my wife. I, I want, I want to give her a big hug because she's feeling so down at the moment. But I can't risk taking myself out of work. I got to work the other morning, and within an hour of starting, I felt really peaking. I was hot and cold, flushes. I was like, oh no, please no. So I sent the boss a message like, when you get in, I'm going home, and I'm going to do another test. I was just tired. Yeah. <laughs> it's because I've had restless nights. I just like, I got home, passed out, felt really great afterwards. So I don't know. I mean, I've got, I've got a bit of a tickly throat at the moment, but I've had that for about, I've had that on and off over the past like four or five weeks and it's got to nothing. It's just, this is what I'm like at this time of year. You can only just keep taking tests and just hoping for the yeah. best. That's the only way to do it. But we're not here, believe it or not, to talk about Andy's COVID problems because while interesting that they are and the fact that he is the omega man are we here to talk about film i mean it does it does make me wonder if you were the last man on earth, man on earth what would be the first thing that you do before we get onto the show what would be the first thing that oh, you good would question do? what would you do <laughs> i would uh, I'd, I'd take the car i'd drive out of the city i jokingly took part in a in a, a, a thing a few years ago which was what would you do if, if the, the zombie uh, apocalypse happened and i found the perfect spot to hide away in so i would go to there because i think you know you want to get out of the cities and uh, because of all the, the the smell and then i'd have to clearly go looking for food uh and then i would find as many i'd do the the thing that um i'd do the thing that will smith does i'd, I'd have a, a a variety of cars to drive around in but i <laughs> I think find food. I'm, I'm so practical. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I've got to take control of the situation. And then, of course, I'd try, as long as the power was on, try to catch up with all the films that I should have been reviewing for this show and the deep dives I should have been watching. I'd, I'd be doing that. I'm doing the podcast on my own to myself, going, Andy, Andy, where are you? Andy, why aren't you editing? You'll send this? out distress messages. You'll be sending out like edited podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> Here's me talking about a film that Andy spoke about three years ago. Yeah. Finally got round to watching. Does it show how much of a nerdy geek that I am that my first thought would be to go to a library and learn how to do things? <laughs> well, no, actually, it's very practical. Uh, um, it is very practical. First thing you do, was, learn how to... I was thinking this through. It's like, you know, obviously I'd want to go to a cinema because I can run run projectors, etc. But if the power's not working, I need to know how to get the power working. But can I, build, can I make a manual, like a portable generator? But how do you connect them? So it all tracked back and I thought through everything that I needed to do and went... I need to go research how to build things and maintain things and get power grids running. So I'm going to a library. <laughs> yeah, good point. You know what? You thought this too better than I have. My other half said if there's a, a zombie apocalypse, she just wouldn't be able to do with all the running. Yeah. <laughs> She'd rather be a zombie because it's, it's more about the walking than it's, the running. Yeah, you can just plod around at your own pace that way. <laughs> yeah, who cares? It's just like being in Meadow Hall, isn't it? It's just like, oh, <laughs> shop window. For those people in Utah, Meadow Hall is a shopping mall. <laughs> We call it Meadow Hell. And there you go. <laughs> so here we are with another show. And what have we got in this show for you? Well, coming up, we'll be doing this week's deep dive into Frank Darabont's Stephen King adaptation, The Green Mile. Andy is going to be proffering forward some of his reviews that he's seen on The World of the Couch. <laughs> <laughs> seen, seen from his couch perspective. That won't make the radio show because no one will know what we're talking about. But Andy, you're going to be talking about... 
Uh, Cop Shop, which came out last year, but it landed on Amazon this past week. Mass, which landed on Sky and um, Now TV. And, hey, I've been talking about it constantly for the past few months. Sync 2 landed this weekend, and boy, I got to see it. Of course, we'll have our usual neat things, but before any of that, Andy and I have been scouring the internet to bring you the latest gossip, the latest info, the budgets, the blockbusters, the heartbreak that is the news. You know what? I did that intro to the news without mentioning anything that I wanted to mention. I just got into a brain fog about halfway through, which I'll explain in our neat thing as to why I've got brain fog. But let's start the news with, of course, the box office. And clearly, as it's been a bit of a quiet week, where's Spider-Man? I mean, not literally where's Spider-Man, but where's Spider-Man at the top of the Who's chart? Spider-Man? That spell really worked on you. Andy, it's just a movie. So, Andy, what we got in you? It's not just a movie. It's my life. <laughs> So where are we with the big figures for this week? So over in the US, Spidey is still number one with Scream in second. Sing 2 holding on to a respectable third place. Redeeming Love is a new entry hitting into the fourth spot. And The King's Man is still soldiering on in fifth place. Spidey has now taken $735 million in the US and is past a billion elsewhere for a haul of $1.74 billion worldwide, which is Pretty impressive. Uh, Scream has nabbed over 100 million worldwide so far, definitely showing that there's life in this franchise yet. And Sing 2 is now up to 267 million worldwide and refuses to slow down. Here in the UK, the top five saw Sing 2 open and smash into the top spot with £6.7 million. Belfast took second place with £1.9 million, only having a 14% drop-off for its second week, which shows very strong word-of-mouth appeal. And some of that word-of-mouth, let's be honest, it's coming from these guys here. Get this film watched. Spidey, after so many weeks in first place, is now in third place. Scream takes fourth, and Nightmare Alley creeps into fifth place. So does that mean now that Spidey has finally hit Avatar numbers in the US? Well, Spidey's not quite reached Avatar business in the US yet, but it is within striking distance. It only needs to take another 25 million to get there. And let's be honest, by next week, it should have got there. It's not going to get any higher than that because the ones ahead of it are so far ahead. They're pretty much unreachable at this point in time. It's never going to get to Avatar numbers worldwide. I don't care how good business it has been. Avatar was a phenomenon. And it only got beaten by Avengers Endgame, didn't it? Yeah. And then they re-released Avatar in China <laughs> and took the top spot back. So those kind of numbers are not attainable with something like Spider-Man. Which is interesting with Avatar because that means, from what you've just said, that potentially it's going to be the Chinese market that, that rockets Avatar, the sequels, into yeah. the big box office. Because we, we've said this before, we don't believe that, Avatar's relevant anymore. It's going to have to be something absolutely unbelievable. And, and of course, with, with Cameron, the possibilities of it being unique, something we've never seen before, uh, uh, the expectation for that is, is, is understandable. But I've, I'm going to say now, the Chinese market is what's going to, going to boost that movie. I mean, it, it's the whole international aspect that will really boost the Avatar sequels, if anything. That's assuming they get a release over there. We don't know what's happening with releases over there at this point in time. 
Yeah, in China, the first Avatar film took 200, 261 million, which was pretty good. Uh, yeah. Compared against the US domestic of 760 million, which Spidey's trounced now. Uh, but if we see like a pickup again, the Chinese market and indeed the Japanese, uh, the European market was fantastic for it. There was some absolutely stunning figures worldwide. It was an f- international phenomenon. Whether that was down to the 3D techniques being used, whether it is the gimmick aspect of it, we will only find out when the second film comes out. Well, at the time, it was uh, it was breathtaking. We were immersed in a world that we'd never been able to do before. Now, retrospectively, there's there's criticisms of that because it's a it's a film of its time period. Yeah, as I said, it has to do something phenomenal to to prove its worth. What what we over ten years since it came out, the world's changed and audience have changed. Avatar's got to do something special, so we'll, we'll we'll wait and see. But moving on, what else have we got in the news? A little bit of a release date shuffle again. Downton: A New Era is going to take a little longer to get to us. It moves from March the eighteenth to April the twenty ninth. Uh, this new entry entry in the Downton Abbey series. Uh, we'll see the cast journey to the south of France to uncover the mystery of the Dowager Countess's newly inherited villa. And that means absolutely nothing to me because I've never watched down <laughs> No, I tried. I, I tried because <laughs> it was a, a cultural phenomenon that I, I ought to give it a go, but it, it, did, it did nothing for me. It's interesting, though, that the fact that they are going to the south of France, they are fitting into that British TV series turned to the big screen <laughs> trope of taking your characters on holiday. Every... <laughs> Every sitcom that got turned into a into a big screen version during the seventies. Holiday on the buses. Characters on holiday. <laughs> You're right. Holiday on the buses. Are you being served? That's what you do if you've got the budget to to do something different with your characters. You took them on holiday, and it seems as though Downton is doing exactly the same. He's keeping that that British tradition alive. It's not going to be as as much fun as um, Holiday on the Buses, though, is it? Let's be honest. It's probably funnier, actually, <laughs> in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> um, also moving date is the Mark Rylance and Zoe Deutsch thriller about a tailor who must outwit some mobsters to survive the night, the outfit. That's shifting from late February to middle of March. Cast alone just gets me interested in yeah. that. I don't care about the plot. Yeah, we talked about Rylance, how great he is. But we're expecting a few more slight release date shuffles even though the main films the huge releases seem to be firmly locked in now tickets are now going on sale for uncharted etc etc so i think a lot of the big blockbusters they're comfortable with it's the ones that they're not entirely sure what kind of audience it's going to get i'm quite surprised with downton because i know the age group of the audience that will generally be coming to that and they've been coming into us in droves this past week because of films such as belfast belfast has brought in a huge wave of audience on its second weekend for us. I think that maybe they've they've jumped the gun a bit by putting this back. I think they could have actually kept it with March and still been a success. But it is what it is. This is the world that we live in. It is. But with regards to the world that we live in, you've heard the comments very frequently, streaming is the future. But is it? Is it genuinely the future? Because Comcast have revealed their numbers for the Peacock streaming service. You remember how we laughed when they said Peacock streaming service? We were very jovial. Yes. It's hit 24.5 million active accounts. Sounds impressive. It's up 4.5 million accounts since last June. Again, sounds impressive. Sounds all good. I can, I can, Andy, we're going to be talking about your butt. Mention your big butt. <laughs> My big butt in this. Let's look at the financials. 
The service generated $778 million in revenue in 2021. I'd have a slice of that. But lost $1.7 billion. Oh, okay. I'm not very good with maths. It's never been my uh, my forte. But even I know that's not good. Uh, in the previous year for 2020, they took $118 million in takings and lost $663 million. Now, you would have thought that with all the lockdowns between 2020 and 2021 and all the content that went directly to Peacock streaming, as it like it skipped the cinemas uh, or went joint releases and went on to streaming at the same time, you would have expected that they would have done very, very much better on the financials in so 2021. But it appears that all that they've managed to do is lose a significant amount of money because, well, I've said it before and I'll say it again. When something gets a split release at cinemas and on streaming at the same time, there's a perfect copy of it illegally to find online. Yeah, you don't even have to uh, talk anymore about that. Just leave it hanging because that's the world that we live in. And, you know, for years, film industries, <laughs> record companies, TV companies were their first line of attack was streaming services, illegal streaming services. And now they've just opened the door to yeah. actually uh, uh, negate their own product. It, it puts a bit of like a. Peacock and Comcast have released these figures, but we never get these kind of figures from, say, Disney or HBO. I mean, HBO are very, very shady about what their actual viewerships are. Yeah. They keep saying, oh, this has done much better than we expected. So what do you mean by that? What did you expect? Two, two viewers or five? I don't know. The streaming services are hesitant to give away what actual money they're making. There's rumors that Netflix permanently run in the red, but they're, they're aiming the long game. But if this is a sign of how much streaming is losing year on year, then it's no wonder that they're starting to realise that they need to get the big films made and in cinemas to make the blockbuster money. I know um, Disney's Bob Iger has commented around the idea that cinemas have their purpose for the big blockbusters, but the smaller key films are the ones that would go directly to streaming. And I can kind of see that, even though I think it's a shame yeah. you won't get to see from a moralistic smaller point films of view, screen. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, a film like Belfast isn't is going to do well because of word of mouth, and there will be a certain yeah. audience for that who will go check it out at the cinema. But there are, unfortunately, the, with the times that we live in, and you know, we talked about this yeah. a couple of weeks ago, which seems to be my my motto when we get T-shirts made. I'm going to have that as my motto. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but. You know, uh, we talked about the, the the changes in what audience want and how they want to devour their material. Unfortunately, smaller films are now more likely to reach a bigger audience via a streaming service. So it, it's the evolving world that we live in with regards to film releases. The big blockbusters like your Spider-Mans are where the money will get made for the cinemas. And cinemas will be happy to have regular blockbusters like that coming through. Those of us who are film files will lament the loss of the smaller indie films and we'll still try to push for as many of them to get onto the big screen as possible. But is streaming the future? Maybe not. Maybe it isn't. Or maybe it's the fact, as we've said multiple times before, there's too many services out there and they're battling. This 1.7 billion loss, most of that's probably come from the bidding wars that they've had with other services to get an exclusivity on something. Well, so eventually one's going to go, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to lose one. We'll, I reckon, we'll lose more than one. I reckon it'll only be a few years before we're back down to the, just the core handful of streaming services out there. And even then, anything more than three streaming services is one too much. Okay. Well, I've got some news on the back end of that. 
Yeah. Uh, you were a fan. I was, I was less so. But Mortal Kombat, there's a sequel in the works. <laughs> Mortal Kombat! Dun, 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 Sorry. <laughs> the critical reaction to the last film was, shall we say, um, a bit punishable. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, most critics were throwing chains with daggers in them at people and saying, finish him. Uh, after <laughs> You've seeing got that my film. gag. I was just building to that gag. But I'll, I'll give it to you because I'm that kind of guy. Whereas I was sat there going, flawless victory. Um, I thoroughly loved Mortal Kombat. It was what it needed to be. It was utter nonsense, just like the games. And it was purely made for the fans. And now it's Jeremy Slater, who's been signed up to pen the script. Uh, Slater's recently finished work on the Moon Knight series. And were also co-created, was it Exorcist? Yeah, the great, great series, Exorcist. Now you could say, yeah, but was he was the guy who gave us that really bad Fantastic Four movie doesn't matter he was a writer on it it yes. wasn't his fault i've seen this draft and it was a good draft it was a really good draft it was a different take but it, it was more kind of your ultimate fantastic four but much yeah. different much more fun than the film that we we got but i, I like slater i think he's a, he's a good writer um i'm looking forward to moon knight as we said last week but the exorcist series if you've not seen it find it somewhere it's well worth checking out he also helped uh, develop umbrella academy for netflix didn't he that's right yeah that's one of his so you know um whatever you think check out uh umbrella academy because that's well worth it so there's some solid credentials behind there there's no details yet on which cast members would return it's expected that most of them would because uh well they're not really big names uh, because <laughs> because you know they, they, most of them were, would have been locked in for at least three films usually yeah. when these contract negotiations start uh, but even if they don't with the wealth of characters on offer from the games any absences won't necessarily be missed because as they can easily be swapped out for alternate versions i'm excited i loved the first one i would happily watch a sequel to it i get that not it's not everyone's cup of tea but as a video game fan it's right up my alley now you uh, were other a... things right up my alley. Okay, let's go up your alley, and I think I know what you're going to talk about because you were a big <laughs> fan of this uh, in your review last week, and I've yet to see it. Okay, uh, no, that's <laughs> I thought you were going to talk going about to... black and white edition of um, Nightmare Alley. Oh, I can talk about that. Yes. You just, I just thought you'd, <laughs> I'll, you'd, I'll, you segued perfectly with right up my alley. <laughs> I will happily have a rant about that. So, uh, right up my alley, or not necessarily right up my alley, because I've had a rant about this before, and so I'm going to end up ranting again. So, Lee, get ready. I'm to ready to, to, to uh, pull the plug at any point. So, the news came that Nightmare Alley, which is performing moderately at the box office in the UK at the moment, it did nothing in the US. They're reissuing it in the US in the black and white chromatic kind of edition. You know, that where they, where they suddenly re-release things to try to get extra money by saying, ooh, now it's all film noir-ish, and ooh, you're going to really love it more. And I, if I want to watch a film that was made in colour, in black and white, I will turn down the colour on my TV set and adjust the contrast, because that's all that's ever doing. They've done this with Logan. They've done this with Mad Max Fury Road, which we'll talk about when we get round to the deep dive on Fury Road. They've done this on Parasite. And every single time, you get exactly the same effect if you just use the settings on your TV to reduce the colour down to zero and change your contrast level a bit. Now, where I'm going to interject on this, <laughs> and I've not seen Nightmare Alley, but I know it's the influences for, for this film are that kind of noirish uh, 40s filmmaking so I can see why Del Toro wants to do that. Because let's be honest, the film's barely made a flutter at the US box office as is. 
uh, and if he'd released it as he wanted to, you know, the vision for it as a black and white film noir would have even done done less business. So I can kind of get that, and then because it's only a limited release and they're only doing it because it's uh, it's it's a, it's a it's a vanity project, and I mean that in the best possible way for Del Toro. It gives you the opportunity. I didn't mind the chrome steel version of Mad Max. I thought it. I thought it was was. It made a film that was already wonderful, very beautiful in a different kind of way. Uh, and and another film that I really liked in black and white because there was an additional DVD was The Mist because it was such a black and white story anyway, and it had that throwback to two sort of fifties horror movies. It, it, I could see the aesthetic in it. I understand that it's not everybody's cup of tea, and, and I totally get that you say it's your choice. But I also think it's your choice to say, you know, I'd like to see how how the director envisaged it and he envisaged this as a, as a film noir. So I'm, I'm intrigued and I've been seeing some of the production stills of it in black and white. It, it even more so captures a period. Um, and I think that's the way in his head he intended that film to be seen, but purely for commercial reasons. Why, why release a black and white version? But it is only a limited release. My issue with the black and white versions of films that were made in colour is not that they're in black and white, because I embrace black and white when you... Belfast uses it beautifully. And that was shot knowing it was going to be a black and white, so the lighting is set up to be able to get the shadows and the contrasting and everything. Everything on set is done knowing you're making it in black and white. The problem when you make something in colour is that you're going to set up your lighting, etc., in a different way yeah, to true. enhance things. And so when you convert it to black and white afterwards, it's not going to have the same effect as if you shot it for black and white. That's my opinion opposition to all this like i say you might if it's already been done in color just turn down the color on your tv set and adjust your contrast settings you'll get the same effect because that's all that they're effectively doing maybe with a few more settings but on a basic level that's basically it i again just slightly in in defense and i've not seen it is as looking at the production stills for, for nightmare alley that are in black and white it does have that sort of deep shadow film noir but until we see it it's only speculation. What I have seen, which made me very giddy this week, is the trailer for the Foo Fighters comedy horror, Studio 666, which is, I don't know where this is going to go, but, you know, Dave Grohl just can pull off, not only being a fabulous <laughs> musician, a guitarist, drummer, but also a, a damn good comedy actor from, from the clips I've seen and, and the appearances I've seen him make in, in, in other films. This, this could be closer to the Beatles' help than, say, Kiss meets the Phantom yeah. of the Park. Yeah, I love the fact that this all came about just through them being bored during lockdown and just deciding, let's make a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, when you've got the money to do that, as, as Grohl clearly has. <laughs> and he is an interesting filmmaker. He's made a couple of documentaries, which are very good. I'm uh, I, I'm intrigued by this. I, I thought it looked hysterical. So, yeah, I, do, I don't know if we get it. Um, I know we get it in the UK next month. But I don't know yeah. if that's going to be a limited cinema release or we're getting on streaming at this stage. Not heard anything from our end as of yet. We'll keep you posted. James Gunn has confirmed that Guardians of the Galaxy 3 will be the last outing for this team. And he's teased it being a darker entry. Yes. Um, in his words, this is the end for us. The last time people will see this team of Guardians. It's big. It's so, so big and dark and different from what people might be expecting it to be. I just want to be true to the characters, the story, and give people the wrap-up that they deserve for the story. That's always a little bit scary. I'm very aware that the third film in most trilogies suck. So he knows the pitfalls that are ahead, and he's hoping to avoid them by delivering something slightly different. Obviously, the speculation has now started, and we've been discussing at work, like, oh, do you think he's going to kill people off? Oh, he probably will. Who would he kill off? Uh, we've been narrowing down who we think he won't kill off. Gamora's already been killed off. 
and then we've got an alternate for Gamora, so he's not going to kill Gamora off again, let's be honest. Drax. He's already killed Groot off in the first one, so he's not going to kill Groot off again. Drax. The good money's on Drax. Drax. We'll see anyway. One thing that James Gunn is good at doing is catching us off guard, as well as one thing, as a side note, one other thing that James Gunn is good at doing is shoehorning in random obscure characters into the DCEU because he keeps name dropping all the bizarre characters from the DC world in the Peacemaker TV series and making them canon for the DCEU. We've got Matter-Eating Lad has been referred to. Yes. Matter-Eating Lad has been referred to. For those who don't know Matter-Eating Lad is, he's from the uh, 1960s run of the Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> uh, as, as they used to say in the, the, the Stan Lee things, when they used to do the little box at the bottom of comics, go, uh, yeah, Stan Lee would put a comment and go, <laughs> yes. Stan says, that was Lee says. There's also Batmite he's referred to, because Peacemaker's apparently um, encountered all of these and has stories about all of them. So every time he name drops one, Gunn posts out just a, a comic book like image from like one of the classic comics and just writes canon. And that's beautiful. Well done, James. You are having so much fun messing things up for the future of the DCEU. It can never go back to Snyderverse because he's made it too silly now. Um, and talking of uh, Peacemaker, when do we get a UK release? Is there anything on the horizon? Oh, wouldn't we like to know the answer to that one? There's still nothing confirmed for the UK release, which is it's starting to grate on the British public because every week, whenever they post out, there's a new episode airing on HBO Max and internationally everywhere that you can find it, except for the UK. Mm, I wonder where that is. You'd think it would have been Sky. I say that it's possible that all that Sky and HBO deal has now got towards the end now. Right. And so they have to renegotiate everything, so it's possible to get picked up by someone else. As soon as we know, we will let you know. Kind of linked to the DC stuff, Jason Momoa, um, who will be appearing later this year in Aquaman 2. He's in talks to now join the family. For Fast and Furious. It's all about family. Hey, hope. It's all about family. His character's possibly going to be a villain, but let's be honest, in this franchise, a villain character by the end of the film ends up being part of the family by the end of it. Family. It's all about family. Especially if they're a big name and a huge personality like Jason Momoa. So he's going to be not necessarily a villain, but just like a a guy who's been misunderstood. I don't know. But it'll be family. It'll be family. Family. It's set for release on May the 19th, 2023. The plot details for the film are under wraps, but I'm going to hazard a guess, and this is me fortune telling here, there's going to be some cars, there'll be some weird stunts, some carnage, and there'll be like planes blowing up. Okay. That's just that's just a guess. I think you might be spot on. We don't know. That, <laughs> that might go into our speculation file. And on the subject of insane stunts, more details about the Tom Cruise-led space film have come to light. We know from previous reports that it's Doug Lyman and Tom Cruise teaming with Christopher McQuarrie for a 200 million film that is going to be partially shot in space with the aid of Elon Musk's SpaceX. We now know that the production is hoped to be starting at Paramount early next year with the studio just waiting on the script from Lyman and Macquarie to sign off on. It's expected it will be the next production after Cruise and Macquarie finished shooting Mission Impossible 8, which was shot back-to-back with 7. And the story has Cruise as a down-on-his-luck guy who finds himself in the position of being the only person who can save Earth. It's going to be partially shot on the International Space Station, with most of the film being made traditionally on Earth, and also some on the rockets to and from the space station. It's an exciting project. 
it's Tom Cruise just basically getting shot into space. And whereas everyone else would go, special effects me up for this one. He's like, no, no, no. If I'm getting shot into space, I'm going into space. Let's do it. And if Elon Musk evolved, you know, it's it's nothing for Elon Musk to go, yeah, come along, Tom Cruise. You have a flight for free because the publicity yep. would just be huge. Yeah. It's it's such a good job that Tom Cruise never signed up to be in um, Danny Boyle's sunshine because he would have literally just thrown himself into the sun at the end of it, wouldn't he? <laughs> hey, uh, you're a big fan of Bloomhouse. I'm a big fan of Bloomhouse. I'm a big fan of Stephen King. You're a big fan of Stephen King. We know that Bloomhouse has been expanding it, its horror screaminess into TV for some time now anyway, and already has an adaptation of Stephen King in the works. But anyway, the company have announced the plan to make a show based on the novel, which I've not read or know very little about, called Later, and it's to star Lucy Liu. The book focuses on Tia a literary agency owner who is raising her son Jamie alone and finds herself on the brink of a professional ruin when her star author client dies before turning out the work that will make her agency financially whole. Jamie, it turns out, has the supernatural ability to talk to the dead, all of whom tell him the truth. So kind of a, a shining kind of vibe I'm getting from that. I don't know this book and I've... Uh, uh, I've gone back and, and read quite a lot of Stephen King, as mentioned in Neat Things. So working with uh, Bloom and King together just seems to be, um, you know, a pretty good choice. Anyway, uh, Lucy Liu, yeah. meanwhile, is finishing her work on Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which is due out next year. Looking forward to Shazam. Uh, in Bizarro News this week, and this is starting to become a regular thing. Should we have a Bizarro News just... theme? So we can have some music <laughs> when we get Bizarro News. If if we get to like four episodes in the run where we're, where we're, I've found like something which has just baffled me, then yes, I'll start doing that as an actual LinkedIn theme. But have you seen that the Chinese streaming platform Tencent Video have added Fight Club to its pick? It's I the first not. time it's got a release in China. Okay. Only the film's got a changed ending. Really? Now, the original ending of the film, spoiler alert, sees Project Mayhem successfully completing their plan and destroying the financial sector with the shots of the towering skyscrapers crashing down in the distance. Now, instead of that, the film cuts to on-screen text that replaces the last few minutes of the film, explaining that the plan was halted by law enforcement and Tyler Durden was arrested and sentenced to the lunatic asylum. Now, whilst this is actually <laughs> closer to the book ending, and anyone who's read the book knows that that's kind of like where it ended on the book, it's not thought that this was changed because everyone in China is a huge Chuck Palahniuk fan. This is more to show that the state prevails and wins at the end and any act of uprising will be easily quelled. Yeah, I think so. I, it's amazing that... The, um... They let them do that, but I guess, you know, spoilers, the film has been out for 20-odd years now. <laughs> it's funny I, I, it's, it's funny you should say that because I revisited um, Fight Club quite recently as part of a, a teaching exercise. You know, boy, that film holds up so, so yeah. well. It still feels absolutely fresh. And, and just to annoy yeah. you, Andy... I have a signed copy of the book Fight Club by the author. That annoys me. <laughs> so in order to get rid of my annoyance, let's uh, talk about Frank Grillo, Mecky Pfeiffer, Scott Adkins and Dermot Mulroney are set to star in an action feature, Lights Out, directed by Christian Sesma, and it's penned by Gary Charles and Chad Law. Grillo, who I'll be talking about later in one of my reviews, will play an ex-soldier turned underground fighter with the help of a just-released ex-con pitting him against corrupt cops, hired killers, and those set to bring him and all he cares about down. It sounds generic, but there's names in there that I'm interested in. Scott Adkins and Frank Grillo alone are enough to get me interested in an action film these days because they bring that kind of 70s and 80s action aesthetic. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, we we mentioned we mentioned Scott Adkins when we were talking about uh, the our love of martial arts films and how he's one of the modern era of bringing that classic martial arts technique to the screen. Frank Grillo was always my perfect casting for the Punisher. Always yeah. my my dream casting for the Punisher. Uh, a bit of TV casting news for you. Ashoka, the Star Wars uh, spin-off, uh, again we'll be drawing reference to that later. Adds uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead to the cast. We like Mary Elizabeth Winstead and we like the Ashoka character. Yeah. And I was a partial big fan of Good Omens, the original series, and we've said before that the, there is a season two on its way. Anyway, Derek Jacoby has, has joined the cast of that. As I said, I'm a fan of the book. The book made me laugh out loud. The TV series, even though it was so well done, didn't as much. Not say I didn't like it, it just didn't make me laugh as much. Just as didn't resonate as much. No, the book was hysterical. The TV series just just strangely wasn't. More casting news and West Side Story and American Horror Story actor Kyle Allen is going to be playing He-Man yes, in I the saw that. long in gestation live action movie based on the toys. Netflix have nabbed the rights. They were previously held by Sony, but Netflix have been uh, doing a lot with the Masters of the Universe. Do you know where that is? With... The guy who owns Netflix is a huge Masters of the Universe fan. He's yeah. an absolute He-Man geek. That's why you've got so many series. You've got the Kevin Smith series. You've got the other uh, uh, He-Man show. And that's why you've got it. He's such a huge, huge uh, He-Man fan. So um, Sony will keep the rights to the Chinese distribution of it. But Netflix are locking in summer 2022 for a production start. Full story details at this point in time are unknown. But let's be honest, it's going to be uh, Prince Adam of Eternia protecting the secrets of Castle Grayskull against Skeletor and his evil army. I mean, what else is the Masters of the Universe going to be about? The Knee Brothers, who were behind The Lost City, will direct from a script that they wrote with Shang-Chi writer David Callahan. Okay. It's not my bag at all. I I tried to watch the Kevin Smith series and I thought it was well done. And I thought they made some really clever choices uh, yeah. which of course infuriated fans but that's what you're there to be done you're there to be infuriated so you should be um it shouldn't always be fan service and i thought it, it was a, a pretty good series me and the me and the child watched it uh, i'm just not a big fan of that particular um uh, particular set of stories they, they don't resonate to me they weren't my childhood but i i thought kevin smith series was, was pretty good so i'd probably watch it with the with the child but I don't think it would draw me in otherwise. I just It's just not me. Not my bag, baby. Uh, Chris Evans is going to star alongside Rock the Dwayne Johnson for Amazon Studios' Red One, which is set during the holiday season. Plot details are under wraps, but we do know it's a globe-trotting adventure comedy set in a whole new universe. Hiram Garcia created the story, and Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle director Jake Kazdan is directing from a screenplay by Chris Morgan. And that bit got me interested, the Jake Kazdan. Yeah. It's it's basically everyone who's worked with Rock the Dwayne Johnson has cobbled together to come up with a story for a new vehicle for him for Amazon. That's how I've read this one. And it's another week, so that means there's another Jake Gyllenhaal project is in the in the can <laughs> uh, or in the pipeline. The guy seems to be quite busy recently. This time, he's set to produce and star in a heist thriller called Cut and Run. John Glenn, who um, penned Eagle Eye and Law Abiding Citizen, is going to write the script about a group of thieves who use high-powered speedboats to rob super yachts, but they steal from the wrong people and end up fighting for their lives. So it's it's pretty a generic template, only this time set at sea. Because we've seen this template, you've robbed from the wrong people in ganglands in New York and LA, etc. Now do it on speedboats. Why not? And Steve Carell, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Fiona Shaw, Alan Kim, Kaylee Fleming and Louis Gossett Jr., are joining Ryan Reynolds and John Krasinski in the comedy Imaginary Friends for Paramount. Uh, Krasinski 
is writing and directing and producing and starring, whilst Reynolds will just turn up and look as charming as ever. In this film about a man who can see and talk to people's imaginary friends, he befriends any imaginary friends that get discarded or forgotten as people move from childhood to adulthood. However, some of the IFs have gone bad and only Reynolds can save the world from them. And <laughs> that's, that's such it. a Ryan Reynolds <laughs> uh, pitch if ever <laughs> I heard one. The fact of, uh, of Krasinski doing it makes me more interested. I, w- I was in as soon as Ryan Reynolds was attached, but I love the concept of it. It just seems such a bizarre concept and some great names getting in there nice to see phoebe waller bridge getting added to the mix as well yeah. hey just before we go from the news this has been the talk of the town and i uh I- i'm surprised as, as as everyone else is but we don't talk about bruno the breakout hit song from walt disney <laughs> animation studio encanto is the uk's official number one song right now <laughs> the first disney song to ever reach the top spot in the states it's rising at the top 100 uh, currently in the number two position while the encanto soundtrack album has once again hit number one on the billboard it's been played over 82 million times on spotify and viewed over 133 million times on youtube and it's been taking over tiktok for weeks it's officially an even bigger chart hit than the frozen it wasn't just a song it was a movement let it go <laughs> ironically everyone is talking about bruno who would have saw that coming eh well clear no one would have saw it coming when the film came out at the cinemas and none of you people turned up for it no you didn't bother seeing it at the box office and generating some money for it did you no you wait until it's on streaming and then all of a sudden it's your favorite film ever <laughs> i was there when it came out you weren't you're just hangers on. I was born into the world of this for Bruno. <laughs> and that is the news. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks, otherwise known as Lee Ford and Andy Meekins. Hour and a half rant about all things filmic. <laughs> now, apparently this has been tested across audiences all over the world and is usually the most uninteresting bit of any podcast. But hey, we're going to do it anyway. If you're a fan of the show or this is your first time, hello, you can go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast. In fact, 103 previous episodes, as well as bonus episodes. So come along and join the Film File family. It's all about family. It really is all about family. All you have to do, head over to your favorite podcast platform, find the Film File, hit the subscribe button, and please, 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 leave a like and we will thank you become part of the family if you want to know more about the film file all you have to do is head on over to twitter and follow us at film file uk and when you follow us i will follow back because i'm that kind of person but if you then unfollow me like those dicks that keep following and building that and harvesting i will unfollow you and then i'll track you down and make your life a misery but that's uh, a separate story altogether head on over to head on over to twitter follow us at film file uk um, you can head over to other social media platforms basically just look for film file uk on facebook tiktok whatever and you'll probably find us or you can email us with any thoughts, comments, suggestions, films that you love, top films, least favourite films of all time. Films you want us to track down that you only remember a partial scene from, or a character in a segment we like to call, it's that man in that film. What's it called? Yep, we will happily decipher whatever clues you can give and try to work out how to how you can get a hand, get your hands on that film. Or you can... Um, you can tell me why I'm wrong about black and white films made out of colour films. Or you can tell me that you agree with me that if they're going to shoot something for black and white, shoot it for black and white. Anyway, rant over. Podcast. <laughs> Podcast at filmfile.com.
www.thepodcast.co.uk. <laughs> I had one of those uh, um, those situations where somebody asked me about a film, and I got this one. See if you can work it out. It's uh, it was a bit like Sixth Sense. It stars Robert Powell. I, I think Jenny Agatha was in it, and there's a plane crash. Do you know? Oh. I do. I, I I knew this one. It's a film called Survivor with Robert Powell. And hey, check it out. It's a really, really good spooky Australian movie. Uh, well worth seeing. I think I've seen that, but I can't think. I can't think whether that's it. I'm tracking it down. I'm getting that tracked down, and I will get that watched. If you want to check it out, it is on Shudder. Well worth seeing. This week we've got another deep dive for you, and you know that we are big fans here at the Film File of Stephen King. Another big fan is Frank Darabont, who does justice to Stephen King. And he does justice to Stephen King's 1996 novel, or continuing story, if you got it the first time round, of The Green Mile. I'm not going to have any trouble with you. No, sir. Not all guards are good. Not all prisoners are bad. John Coffey is a murderer. I don't think he did it at all. Not all things... Take my hand, boss. Please. ...are easily explained. What did you just do to me? Was it a miracle? Yes, it was. From the director of The Shawshank Redemption... You want me to take you out of here? Tom Hanks, The Green Mile. Starring Tom Hanks as a death row prison guard during the Great Depression who witnesses supernatural events following the arrival of an enigmatic convict played beautifully by the late Michael Clark Duncan at the facility. David Morse, Bonnie Hunt, Doug Hutchinson and the great James Cromwell appear as well in supporting roles. So following on from Darabont's success of the Shawshank Redemption and of course later The Mist, this is the heart-rending story of John Coffey, a physically imposing but mild-mannered black man who's been sentenced to death after being convicted of raping and murdering two little white girls. He joins two condemned convicts on the block. This is a story of injustice. It's a story of hope, all with that wonderful Stephen King element of the supernatural that makes us care so much for this towering giant of a man. Um, I saw this, and like everyone else who saw this, I cried at the end. Darabont gets Stephen King. They have a, a simpatico in their storytelling. He knows the right beats to take from a King story. He doesn't always stick truly to the text, but what he delivers, he delivers it in a way that, that you can imagine King just being so happy with because he he, he, he understands Stephen King's voice in, in The Shawshank uh, uh, and in The Mist. He gets King, and that's why I think I'd like to see Darabont do more in the King universe. But while not as well-received as Shawshank, I, I think that's because of the sentimentality aspect of it but that's to take nothing away with it because it's it's a very very powerful and beautifully told film that as i said if you see it will make you cry as well andy did you did you like this one were you a fan of the books because it was started out as a series of books didn't it, it serialized a... novel in 1996 when the serialized novels were coming out i was buying them on release day and hastily looking forward to the next part coming out i thought it was a very unique way for king to release a story at that point in time yeah um, it's a throwback I, to the classics of dickens that's how dickens did it yeah i was initially worried that maybe the way that he'd structured it would have made it feel disjointed but no it worked so well in serialized form but then i, I then picked up the full volume at the end of buying the, all the serialized ones and it still works well as a fluid story and when it was getting ad adapted it, for the 1999 film by frank darabont i got excited simply because darabont's name being attached to it made me remember how good shawshank was and how well he'd adapted that he could do the prison drama aspect and he clearly could tap into king 
And when I watched this film at the cinema, like yourself, I was in tears by the end of it. I already knew what the story was going to be. I'd read the book twice over by that point, but it was portrayed so marvellously. The cast lineup, I mean, Hanks, Hanks apparently stayed in character on set at all times, even when King paid him a visit uh, to the set and like was looking around and he looked at like the electric chair and said to Tom, Tom Hanks, like, do you want to have a seat in old Sparky? And Hanks in character went, well, no, sir, I'm in charge of the facilities. And he's just like, wow, that's great. But James, James Cromwell is always great to watch. Sam Rockwell, I kept forgetting that Sam Rockwell yeah, me was in too. this Yeah, till, till re-looking at this, I'd forgotten he was in. I, mean, I knew Barry Pepper was in it. I remember Barry Pepper. Yeah. But I couldn't remember Rockwell being, being in the cast. Harry Dean Stanton has a, a very slight role in there, but has like presence in doing it. David Morse, but Michael Clark Duncan steals everything in the film, even though the focus is about him. But the focus is on Tom Hanks's Paul Edgecombe character. But it's the presence of Michael Clark Duncan, the very imposing presence. I mean, they, they've used camera trickery, they've used like ang- like angles, etc., to make him more imposing than what he was. Because apparently he's, he's slightly shorter than James Cromwell in real life. But he was just dominating the screen. You believed he was that hulking presence, and he was so gentle in his approach. The heart, the emotion of this film absolutely captivated me when I first watched it and despite the fact that I've bought it on DVD it was still in its shrink wrapper because I've never re-watched it since it came out of the cinema and I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was at the back of my mind that was stopping me from re-watching this two decades later until I finally sat down to re-watch it in preparation for making notes this week and I realized within 15 minutes what it was that was putting me off it's because I knew how much it would cripple me emotionally within 15 minutes I was already starting to feel tears start to build up because I knew where the story was going and I didn't want it to go that way. It's one of those films where you want it to have a different ending each time that you're watching it because you always want things to go a different way, but you understand that they have to go this way. It's majestic is how I describe this film. I just want to point out one thing. This is a long film. You know, it's, uh, it's just short of three hours. doesn't feel long because what Darabont does, and Darabont... I, I want to see more of Darabont on the screen because he, he, he gets cinema and he, and he, as I said before, he's got this relationship with, with King text. He brings out the best of Stephen King's text uh, and doesn't always straight stay true to it as, as with the mist. And, you know, the, the ending of the mist is, is, is a shocking, horrific ending that isn't part of the book. And he, and he gives this story, this sort of very initially a, a very deceptively easygoing kind of, uh, um, absorbing approach to telling this story uh, and then it becomes heart-wrenching and and it's got this this sort of supernatural element to it which is slight which is which again is very king i i, I mentioned in one of my neat things reading a, a stephen king story and he brings in a supernatural element quite late into the story and because it's king it, it's it's there and you accept it and you do with this it doesn't need explaining and and it's it's often with this film that the supernatural element is absorbed into um, into a, into an emotionally powerful piece of storytelling. And as I said, it's a long film, but it, it never feels long because Darabont embeds it with heart and an appreciation of the characters. And he lets the story unfold in front of you uh, with some well-crafted characters. And again, he does that thing. He takes the King characters and he makes them real on screen. Uh, there's there's humour in it. Yeah. There's this huge heartbreaking emotional release at the end. There, there's there's outrage. There's anger through it. Darabont matches 
King's style of storytelling, and they they are in simpatico with each other. And, and I just want to mention as well, because you talk about Michael Duncan Clark being an absolute revelation in this and, and the heart of the story, but it's testament to, to Tom Hanks as such a good actor that you never really talk about how great Hanks is because mm. you just expect Hanks to be good. And he's, he's sublime in this, and he's downplayed, and he is an emotional core to this story you, you couldn't have hank's character without being able to tell everything around it he's the eye of the storm to a degree and you just quickly forget how great hank's is and he's he's not showy and and that's what i always like about hank's he's never oh you you never get the feeling he's overacting he's not he's not giving you the big scenes he he does it so well that makes it more painful he downplays it that's why he's is the uh everyman actor yeah because he he makes you feel he makes you feel as, as a human being rather than you know a, the big performer and, and you, you you know you talk about the key moments in this film but at the heart of it is a very very quiet tom hanks who just adds the heart and and, and soul to this film and uh because it's not flashy performance you you go to other aspects and and I think that's the that is the joy of Tom Hanks. As with all Stephen King's stories, be it in book form or on film, it is interesting revisiting them in this post Dark Tower era, where we know that King deliberately links so many things together. And watching this film and realizing that when they talk about where did John Coffey come from, nobody knows. He just kind of came from nowhere. And then you've got his powers, his shining ability. Obviously, there's ref like there's the hints of like maybe he's got the shine like Danny has in The Shining. But for Dark Tower fans out there, and if you've never read The Dark Tower, but you think you're a Stephen King fan, you really need to read The Dark Tower because it really does embrace everything that he's ever done. I can only assume that John Coffey was a breaker. He was breaking the beams and he somehow escaped. And that's how he got into our world. Because the hints that it's got of there, of his abilities and what he's come from, suggest that he comes from Midworld. He comes from that alternate world that's holding the universe together. And that's what makes going back and revisiting early Stephen King stuff interesting now that we've had the Dark Tower series of books to tell us that there's little references in pretty much everything. I got so much from this film this second time round. It's only, it's only my second time in mm. watching it in over two I've seen decades. it a couple of times. I've seen it. I've only seen it on TV appearances. It's one of those, if it's on, I'm instantly drawn to it. I actually think that I prefer Green Mile to Shawshank Redemption. Really? I adore Shawshank. But I think, I, I, I agree with Stephen King on this one, that the Green Mile is the most faithful adaptation of any of his material to date. And I could, I could just really connect with it in so many ways. It's, you know, King's a master of horror, but it works so well when he does dramatic things. And Darabont really taps into that beautifully. It looks amazing as well. It looks so perfect. The time period it's set in allows it to tackle lots of social issues, including race issues, which is prominent throughout. But like you say, that there's jokey, Nate, there's jokes in there. It's fun, it's vibrant, but it's also heartfelt, sympathetic and empathetic. It's over three hours long, but it feels it needs to be because it allows us to grow along the passage of time that the people on the Green Mile are going through. And it gets you to understand all the characters and how their lives are affected by Coffee's presence. Marvellous film. Absolutely marvellous. If you've never watched Green Mile, then get yourself on it. It's available on Sky Cinema and also now TV Cinema, but it's also available on Netflix. So there's no excuse. And if you don't want to subscribe to either of those services, you can pick it up for rental 
on streaming services from about £2.50 upwards, or just buy yourself the DVD or Blu-ray. You can usually pick it up quite cheap online. So that's this week's Deep Dive, The Green Mile. As Andy said, well worth seeing. But beware if you're going back to it and you're revisiting. That ending doesn't change. It's tissues. still there. There is no alternative cut. It still has that heart-rendering, the heart-breaking finale. Maybe in another turn of the wheel. <laughs> we'll be back next week with another Deep Dive. Okay, so Andy's had a chance to sit through more films than I have. It's been tax week. I've been doing my tax. Give me a break already. It is the <laughs> hardest time of the year. There's one thing I can't stand. It's doing my tax. So, Andy, what have we got? One film that you are going to talk about, I have been looking forward to since I heard about it. I'm going to guess that that's Cop Shop. It is. Now, you know I have a fascination with John Carpenter, one of my all-time favourite directors. And one of my all-time favourite John Carpenter films is Assault on Precinct 13. And when I read about this film, it made reference to uh, Assault on Precinct 13. So I was in. Currently, I am doing the last touches on my first draft for a new screenplay, which is very much inspired by Assault on Precinct 13, uh, which Andy will soon know about because I'm about to send the script to him to have a read through. So uh, I, I referenced uh, a lot of those sorts of kind of movies. And this is uh, a movie at the time I really, really wanted to see while I st when I first started writing it. So uh, looking forward to knowing what you think about this one, Andy. Am I going to be disappointed? I've been waiting so long to see this. What did you do? What I had to do to get to you, Teddy. <laughs> Why are you trying to kill him? I'm the bad guy. Get me out of here. You got to date with me first. I got a lot of money. There's no deal to be made. Deja vu. That's not deja vu, dummy. So Cop Shop sees an assassin, a rookie cop and a con man converging with devastating effects in this action thriller from Joe Carnahan. Frank Grillo plays Teddy, who the film starts with following as he flees from assassins. He sucker punches a cop, played by Alexis Lauder, and he gets himself arrested, thinking he'll be safe behind bars, only to find that one of the assassins, Vidic, played by Gerard Butler, has managed to join him in the cells. As tensions mount, the entire station is placed at risk, especially as one of the cops there has been doing work for the local crime bosses. Carnahan has a certain style that permeates his films, and this is no exception. It's got a feeling very resonant of smoking aces. There's a lot of unlikable characters in here, and that's kind of the point. Even the cops in the station seem lazy and somewhat incompetent, with only the rookie played by Lauda, who still seems to have that fire and energy to do the right thing. Butler plays down and dirty, and Grillo has a chance to show off two aspects to his character here. And when the film lets him let his hair down, literally and figuratively, he becomes a pure machine, showing off his action star energy. But this is a film of twists and turns, some signposted, some quite sharp and subtle. Some of the familiar tropes are added, but then turned around smartly to avoid cliche. And yes, the end result is overall a tad generic, but it has a fun time getting to the end. And it's certainly going to be a pleaser for fans of the genre and definitely for fans of Carnahan. Yeah, looking forward to this one. I'm glad you liked it because that means more than likely I'll like it. What else have you got, Andy? Also on streaming. Went straight to Sky Movies, Mass, the Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton starring film about a couple who lost their son in a school shooting who are to meet with the parents of the shooter, played by Reed Burney and Anne Dowd. The thing that interests me most about this film, it's not really subject matter, it's the director. It's directed by Frank Kranz, who you'll remember as an actor 
he was in Cabin in the Woods and Joss Whedon's The Dollhouse, and he's got kind of got that edgy kind of quality that I I I I, I, I like his performances. So I'm intrigued to see where he goes as director. Anyway, and, and I just point out next week we should have a chat about that Joss Whedon interview. But anyway, tell us about Mass. I don't know if I can do it. Richard, Linda, this is Jay and Gail Perry. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. We want to listen and we want to heal. What would you like to know? Everything. I want to know everything. Why? Why do I want to know about your son? Because he killed mine. How far back would you like to go? Wherever you need. Because I can tell you everything. But there's so much that no one will ever know. I know what happened. No, you do not know how my son died. You do not know. Maybe this is the right way to say goodbye. The film's from director Fran Kranz, and it plays out pretty much in real time as the couples uncomfortably broach the subject of their lost children and their two rather separate, yet very fatally connected lives that they led. The conversation that plays out is cripplingly heartfelt and emotional, with the many stages of grief being explored as the couples try to understand events from both perspectives. The interesting aspect is in the showing of how the parents of a killer will still suffer. It is very easy for us all in society to demonise anyone connected to a killer with comments of how could you not know that they do this without realising that sometimes you can love someone so much that you refuse to see their negatives. The loss of a child impacts on both parties and it's this aspect that the film uses the time to really play with. Never judging, the film is well crafted and marvellously acted. Martha Plimpton and Anne Dowd in particular stand out and really deliver the emotion on both sides of the table. It's heartbreaking and it's sadly entirely relevant to society today. This is a marvellous first-time gig from Frank Kranz and shows promise of the potential we hope to see delivered in future films. I find I'm more interested than wanting to see. I think it's one of those films I, I, I'm not sure whether I want to see or need to see, uh, especially things that's going on right now. So... I can't say that I'm, I, I don't find it interesting because I do. Anyway, what's our last film for review? Finally on the big screen in the UK. And I've been talking about it constantly. And it's done great business in the US. So big things are expected in the UK. And that is Sing 2. Time to show the world what we're made of. If you wanna run away with Good evening. My name is Buster Moon. And it is my great pleasure to present to you a brand new show. I got you. Moonlight, so take your seats. The journey of a lifetime is about to begin. Miss Crawley, you made it. Wow! You did say dressed to impress. Scene two. The new Moon Theatre has been a bustling success since the end of the last film. But when a scout for a big city entertainment slot seems to dismiss the troupe, Buster voiced by Matthew McConaughey, takes matters into his own hands to get a new show to pitch, and in doing so, once more finds himself making promises he might struggle to fulfil, this time to the very dangerous Jimmy Crystal, voiced by Bobby Cannavale. Buster must find a way to convince a long-retired musician, Clay Calloway, voiced by Bono, yes, that Bono, to come back from his seclusion and step into the spotlight once more. All the main gang are back, and the antics are pretty much similar to the first film. 
but that's okay when the end result is as much fun as this. Once again, the great musical picks complement the otherwise generic plotline, and the star power behind the voices and the songs really make it into something special. The animation is more polished than it was last time. There's some great, great energy demonstrated on screen, and the levity and the wit is balanced just right. Now, whilst Buster, voiced by McConaughey, is the lead of the film, once more, like with the previous film, it's the rest of the cast who bring all the heart. And in particular, it's Scarlett Johansson as Ash the Porcupine and Taron Egerton as Johnny the Gorilla, who once again steal the film away. That's not to say that the rest of the cast don't get their own chance to shine. Indeed, everyone gets their moments. But Egerton in particular gives so much life to the young gorilla that you can't help but root for him throughout. Throw in his stunning vocals and the result is a powerful performance that makes you hungry for more. Sing 2 may be more of the same, but it's done well and a great family treat. Sometimes it appears a second helping of the exact same course is just what you need. Uh, I enjoyed the first one. Uh, I didn't think there was a necessity for a second one, but but maybe you've convinced me. It's just fun family entertainment. So what we got coming up in the next week or so? Can I return to cinemas? Um, I know I have a couple of things I need to catch up on. Well, one film you won't, re- I can't see you return to cinemas for, and that's Jackass Forever. Uh, you know, you're probably right on that one. In fact, I know you're right. Uh, but, you know, film of the year is coming out this week, and that is Moonfall. It's going to be the film of the year. <laughs> looks crazy. Absolutely crazy. And on a limited run across the UK, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. I'm kind of interested in that, Andrew Garfield and Jessica Chastain. It's interesting because I just recently read about Tammy Faye and uh, I'm interested to see where it goes. Over on streaming, on Sky and Now TV, Freaky, the Catherine Newton and Vince Vaughn body swap horror. Oh, we horror. loved that film, didn't we? Uh, it's a great film. If we you didn't get a chance it. to see it when it had its limited release before lockdowns, get yourself watching it. Over on Netflix, uh, there's the improv comedy with Will Arnott as an eccentric detective who teams up with clueless celebrity guests who don't know where the story's going each week uh, investigating murders called Murderville. I'm interested with this. Now, we know that improv stuff can sometimes go wrong, but at least this is going for the improv comedy aspect. And Will Arnott, that's enough for me. So fingers crossed this is going to pay off. Over on Amazon, Reacher Season 1 lands. The Jack Reacher novels get a new adaptation with Alan Richardson in the role. Yeah, looking forward to this one. Uh, For those who like their petrol and testosterone, there's a chunk of Fast and Furious films landing this week. Yeah, basically all of them. Skip me by that one. If, if, If that's your thing, it's your thing. Over on Disney+, Plus, very controversial um, at the moment, but Pam and Tommy, the Lily James and Sebastian stand biopic of that notorious time in the late 90s, lands. Seems strange saying that's landing on Disney. I remember it. And um, also, from a few years ago, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri lands on Disney+. Plus. That broke me. That's a film that broke me. Uh, well worth checking out. Okay, so that's about it for this week. Um, enough to be getting yourself prepared for for the next week. Uh, we've got some big releases coming up soon as well, as Andy said. Moonfall, which is going to, uh, is, is going to break the world. <laughs> Certainly going to break the moon. But as it's the end of the show... Before we go, we always do our neat things. So if you've heard this before, you'll know. But if you're new to the show, this is where we talk about something that we've loved, enjoyed, had a good time with. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what genre. As long as we've had a good time and we think it's pretty neat. And Andy, what have you got that's pretty neat? And I think we're going to be we're going to be playing in the same tennis court for this one. So neat thing of this past week 
is uh, Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 0. <laughs> or should I say, Book of Boba Fett, Episode 5, The Return of the Mandalorian. This was an odd one, and, and, and I've got a lot to say, so, so go for <laughs> now, it. Now, I'm not saying The Book of Boba Fett is a good show. It's decidedly average. It spent four episodes being slow-paced, overindulgent setup that appears to be going nowhere. But the fifth episode showed me why I keep returning to Star Wars, even after multiple disappointments. We had an episode which had no Boba Fett because it just picked up on Mando and followed him as he wields his dark saber, reunites with the remaining Mandalorians, gets a new ship and prepares to join the show for the last two episodes. We saw beautiful new locations. The ring world in space was magnificent. We got yes. marvellous direction from Bryce Dallas Howard. It had levity. It had fun. It had action and it had intrigue. And we had some great backstory of the Mandalorians thrown in for good measure. Boba Fett, throughout the decades, has had fans <laughs> clamouring for his own output. Ever since his first casual appearances in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, people have gone, oh, he sounds, seems so mysterious. We want to see more of this. But this book of Boba Fett series has shown that maybe, just maybe, we don't want to return to characters we think we know about. After all, the whole myth of Fett has now been diminished by what we've seen so far. But instead, the new characters work so well. And this episode reminded me of how much of a neat thing the Mandalorian is. The Mandalorian is just brilliant. It was in season one. It was great in season two. And just having a one-off episode where he steals every bit of thunder from Boba Fett by being the best episode of Boba Fett's own series. Mando, you're a neat thing. I will be re-watching this episode and I'm hoping that the last two episodes of this series will be better now that Mando's involved in them. It's There's a lot to unpack on this, and I, I totally agree with everything that you've said. Um, Book of Boba Fett has it's not been a disappointment. It's just not hit the way that, that The Mandalorian did. And I think, uh, you know, with the talent behind it, you've got Robert Rodriguez, you've got uh, Favreau writing everyone as he as he was involved to the degree. And he's moving the Star Wars world in, in, interesting, in an interesting way. Him and Dave Filoni... Everything should be right about Book of Boba Fett, but I think it's the fact that he's not that an interesting character. He was interesting when he was a mystery. He was interesting when he was enigmatic. The more we find out of him, he's just a, not particularly interesting. And we thought we were going to get the space version of The Sopranos, and it's it's not quite like that. And I think there's a couple of reasons. I don't think there's an emotional core to the Book of Boba Fett that there was with The Mandalorian, which was clearly the child or, or baby Yoda. And I think that's what made people love this show because you got you got that odd couple relationship that turned somebody who was an ice cold killer into somebody with a heart. And, and it's not had that. And I thought we were going to get it with the Tusken Raider thing. And, mm. I, and I like this idea that we were going down this dancers with wolves in space idea. But again, it never got there. The supporting characters are more interesting than Boba Fett. Now, that leads my view on this one. You got an episode which you got a guest starring character from another show, which has happened before, granted, but not where you get world building. Normally, I thought you were going to get uh, Mando turn up and then you were going to jump ahead and then join in the gang for, for the big big uh, shootout mm. at the end a kind of magnificent seven kind of deal but you got you got game-changing elements to the mando tv series this was you know uh season 2.5 yeah. you've got a new ship as you said you've got uh, more of the backstory you've got the fact that mando 
isn't going to be now part of part of this guild, part of uh, the Mandalorians, because he he, he revealed himself. <laughs> he's not right. I'll repeat that. He, he showed his helmet. No, he took his helmet out. No, he took it he off. Tra- did he did he play with his dark saber while he was at it? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for for a guest appearance in somebody else's show, you don't get that. You don't get that bit of extra world building because it's somebody else's <laughs> show. But we spent more time wanting to follow the Mandalorian again than we do with Book of Boba Fett. As I say, I think the supporting characters are the strength, particularly Fennec Shand, who I think is 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 the the breakout character from this. But um, yeah, it was it was interesting. I, I I can't say I've ever seen it done unless you get in what we used to be called a backdoor pilot in which you get a character turn up and it's going to be a pilot for somebody else for in, another series about that character happened in Star Trek, happened yeah. in countless other things. But yeah, really interesting. But it just made me realise how much I'm invested in The Mandalorian and I'm not in the book of Boba Fett. Can we also just say that give Bryce Dallas Howard an actual Star Wars movie franchise? Give her her Absolutely. trilogy because she is... In the episodes of the TV shows that she's directed, she has shown a knowledge, an understanding, and a deafness for crafting Star Wars stories on screen. Let her have a big screen outing. Give her three films. Let her have a trilogy to play with. She's absolutely fantastic. I couldn't agree more. There was a couple of shots, and they were they were nuanced in in that particular episode. We finally got to see a womp rat. Yeah. After all these years. <laughs> We got to see a womp rat, but she did a couple of interesting things, some long, long takes where just to say that the character started in one location, went into an elevator and ended up in another location in one single shot yeah. that was really, really smart to give that impression of, of, of the huge world. Yeah, I'd love to see her tackle the next big outing, screen outing for Star Wars. Anyway, that's Andy's neat thing. My neat thing is completely different. It's not a it's not a TV show. It's not a not a film. It's not a book. This time, it's a place. Uh, as you know, or if you're new to the show, you might not know. I play in an Alice Cooper tribute band, and we played our first show of the new year last night in Birmingham at a place called the Billingsley Rock Club, run by the most loveliest people I've ever had the joy to do a gig with the second time we've been there we've been booked for a third time we're doing halloween there just want to give a big shout out to these guys because they love their rock music and they love this venue that they've put together and it's a real sense of family these guys are great and deserve to do to do really well and boy it's so hard out there for live music venues right now there are venues that had to close there are venues that 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 can't pay you what, what, you what you need to be paid. They're really struggling. And rock is struggling generally. It's, um, you know, if it's your genre, you'll have seen how much it's changed over the last few years, as music's changed in general. But uh, Billingsley Rock Club just try really hard to keep, to keep rock music alive and to keep people coming back every week. And they are by far some of the nicest people. You get to meet in a world where there are not so many nice people. And uh, if you're down in the Birmingham way and you're a fan of this show or you want to go for a night out and you think, you know what, I'll, I'll take a I'll take a road trip. Check out uh, Billingsley Rock Club. Uh, fabulous people. And uh, tell them I sent you and, and help keep rock music alive because it deserves to be. And we don't want to see it die. And some people are working very, very hard to keep it alive. And that, folks, is the show for this week. We'll be back again next week with uh, another film file 
just for you because why we love you and i hope deep down inside a little bit of you loves us as well <laughs> and anything any big plans for the week that just gave me strange images in my head um <laughs> my plans for this week survive <laughs> just get, just not yeah sounds COVID like it. and just get on with things there's not really a lot going on at the moment i am playing i've, I've reinstalled all the tomb raider trilogy of games the more recent tomb raiders not the originals so i've started working through them again and i completely forgotten how to play them so that's my only plans this week i'm chilling out with some video games and waiting for moonfall yes because it could <laughs> well be the film of the year he says tongue placed firmly in his cheek for me get the tax done get it sent off and get back to the cinema because it's been a good few weeks with covid and all that just not had a chance to go so a couple of films i am desperate desperate to catch we'll see you again next week but before we go sometimes the embers are better than the campfire.